Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And that's the lovely Roxana. And welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology, especially as it applies to agriculture and medicine and um, the new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and today we're going to be talking about a couple of issues. First, what happened this week with respect to the report that there's weed killer, namely glyphosate, in pretty much all of the cool things you buy at the grocery store. We'll talk about that report, the reaction on Snopes, and then the reaction to the reaction on Snopes, and the reaction to the reaction to the reaction on Snopes that corrected the science. In the second part, we'll talk about hops, the breeding and domestication of the crop that really lends character and interest to a glass of beer. And I speak with Oregon State University professor Sean Townsend, who breeds crop, breeds hops and crops, the crops on hops. (laughs) Um, I know, everything turns into Dr. Seuss these days. He breeds hops for the craft brew industry. And we'll talk about him in part two. And of course, have Chelsea Boonstra and the Boonstra Report. So, uh, what happened this week on Snopes? And if you look um, back in Twitter and earlier this week on Facebook and other social media, you see that there was a report that was being pumped by uh, folks who are not so excited about biotechnology. And since they've had a hard time really assaulting the technology of the genetics uh, and and the amazing safety record of the genetics themselves, they've really gone after the chemistry that's associated with it, namely the herbicide glyphosate, which is the herbicide used with Roundup Ready crops. And you saw um, over the last maybe year, maybe two years, all of these kind of... uh, soft science reports that are being published on websites and in lousy journals that say that there's herbicide everywhere, that it's in your water, it's in your beer, it's in breast milk, it's in, uh, you know, you name it, they've found it there. And really what it means is that they're using a sloppy assay and they're using something called a um, 
a uh, competitive ELISA, which is notoriously noisy, and they're interpreting false information in the noise as a legitimate signal. Well, the new study, oh, bite my tongue, the new activist brochure (laughs) um, claims to have found glyphosate in uh, parts per billion, so we're talking seconds per decades, in... um, in things like Cheerios and Ritz crackers and many of the modern foodstuffs that also the same activist groups kind of target because they're made by large grocery manufacturers. And um, and they also find it in things like organic cookies, which is unfortunate, but they're like, you know, things like Stacy's pita chips, they claim, which, which is they're also made by large manufacturers. So um, this whole entire document looks really convincing to someone who doesn't understand the science and i got emails from friends facebook lit up twitter went crazy hey fulta what's going on with this should i be eating cheerios or feeding oreos to uh my kid and i go well (laughs) that's a good question right there but 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 has nothing to do with the herbicide right so um the bottom line is is that it was not a peer-reviewed document it wasn't technically sound Based on this document that was done by Food Democracy Now, who hates me and hates science in general, they're out just to push an agenda. They um, uh, published so they published this flyer and it goes viral. And then Snopes, the great debunker, is asked about this, and the author Alex Kasprak says, "Well, the claim is a mixture of truth and fiction." And maybe there is something to it. And what he did was mix three different issues together um, that maybe we shouldn't be mixing together. Like the, the scientific veracity of the document, the safety of glyphosate, and then the relevance of the levels that they claim to detect. Those things were kind of mixed together when you really can't do that. And I had a great conversation with him via Twitter and email, and, and it's fixed. But we'll get to that in a minute. So... Um, that was very confusing and very concerning because when Snopes talks, people tend to listen. And check my blog, Illumination. That's uh, I have the whole story there, so we don't have to rehash it here. But what I really wanted to give you the information about is how you can have an important conversation about this document with those who are tending to believe it. First of all, the good things about the report. They, they used a laboratory that implemented LCMS, liquid chromatography, and mass, spectros- or, uh, mass spectroscopy. This is really important. Much better than the competitive ELISA technique and could legitimately detect glyphosate with incredible sensitivity. Again, parts per billion. Okay, that's uh, part per billion is one second in 32 years. So very, very sensitive. And the way that it works is that you extract a population of molecules from a given substrate, so some kind of food or beverage or whatever, or, or you know, water, anything you want, you can extract molecules from it and then look for specific molecules within it, within that mixture. So first you do this extraction. So maybe you would crush up an Oreo into powder and then put it in like a methanol and water mixture, and then you, know, you, you get the idea. You get this sample of molecules that are that are soluble, and then the sample is co- done. Um, we do something to the sample called derivatization. So derivatized means that the sample and the molecules within it are are broken and then tagged with a little chemical addition. 
And the reason that this addition is necessary is because the LCMS technique works best with molecules that have certain chemical characteristics. So if you can tag, like put a little beacon on every molecule in that solution that the machine can see, what it means is that every molecule that's there is more likely to be found. This is why the technique is so sensitive. So if you have a pure solution of glyphosate, and this is where you'd start, you would derivatize it, give it that same tag, and then you could learn a lot about how much is there. And I don't go into the details here, but I just want you to think about it this way. If you have a pure compound, you can add that tag, analyze it with this you know, quarter million dollar machine, and you get a printout that would show a graph with a little bump on it, you know, a little curve that says under this curve is where glyphosate is. This says it's positive for glyphosate detection. It's kind of the signature you would think about for that um, glyphosate, where it would occur on that x-axis. So in other words, you're going to get this little bump on that line, and that one says, I am glyphosate. Now that's in a pure sample. Now what happens when you take a complex mixture and derivatize it, add that little tag to all the molecules? Well, you'll see lots of little bumps along that x-axis of that graph. Lots of little bumps. Some, some peaks that will overlap. Some peaks will be really tall. Some will be very small. And lots and lots of them, thousands of them in most cases. Like when we work with strawberries, it's, ugh, it's off the charts. So you, you see a lot of different little peaks on that graph. Lots of little bumps, lots of little curves that represent, um, the, uh, that represent different compounds that are in that solution. Okay, so here's where it gets interesting. When you do... LCMS, you need to be able to go, uh, you need to be able to understand where your sample, your control, in this case glyphosate, comes out in that analysis on that graph and be sure that there's nothing else in that starting mixture that co-purifies with it. So in other words, is there something else that would share the same kind of chemical characteristics with glyphosate that may end up in the same position on that graph and you don't know unless you do it so is there something in an oreo that has the similar chemical characteristics characteristics that would place it in the same position as glyphosate and could be mistaken as glyphosate that's why when we do this experiment properly we do extraction and derivatization and test with a spiked in compound that we're looking to detect to see if it really is there to show that the chemical signal we're getting is pure and represents only the chemical we seek to detect. In this case, they didn't do that. They used an extraction and derivatization um, protocol that was designed for beer and barley bar- barley tea. In China, you get this tea of cooked roasted barley um, grains that you soak in tea and it tastes great, but I digress. Um, beer is not Oreos, Cheerios are not um, barley tea, Um, Stacy's pita chips are not beer and barley tea, so everything's got different chemicals that could interfere with the faithful detection of glyphosate. This is the problem, is that uh, even when your organic cookies are showing up as positive for glyphosate, you know something's wrong. 
it says either there's glyphosate in your organic cookies and that you know either your companies aren't sourcing materials properly or organic farmers aren't telling the truth and I don't believe either of those things I think the assays bad the other big problem was replication they didn't repeat the different uh, tests they only did one test and claimed to have found this at the edge of the noise even the company that did the test gives it a little asterisk, and you can see this in all the charts. And it says on the original uh, tables from the company that did the test that you can't rely on the quantitation of these data, that the levels are too low. This is really important because when you don't have multiple replicates and you don't do the assay right in the first place, you might find noise uh, something near the limit of detection or near the uh, certainly in an area where it can't be faithfully quantitated meaning you don't really know how much is there if it's there at all now my lab does this all the time we do a lot of work in this area and separating signal from noise and complex mixtures is a real difficult task um, I work with some of the most brilliant people on the planet in this uh, Dr. Thomas Calhoun is really good uh, even students in my lab have have great skills in this area, much better than mine. But we're always very careful not to consider samples that are not 100% clear in terms of presence or absence because of the amount of noise. There are samples in strawberry that we know this compound that we were looking for called methylanthranilate. It's a, uh, a volatile that makes an aroma that people find attractive. We know it's not there because genetically it can't be. Yet sometimes you can detect some noise that would infer that maybe it is. And it would be very difficult to uh, say whether it was or wasn't. So that one we have to treat very carefully. We only can rely on very clear, reproducible uh, um, signals. And so this is what we really need. It's, it's a high, high standard. And it's a high standard that the activists seeking to find glyphosate don't really reach. In fact... A false positive to them, it's still a positive. Think about that for a minute. The assay doesn't say that there's a compound there, yet they're putting pictures of glyphosate bottles, Roundup bottles, on the tables of superimposing them on the table, tray table of a baby with Oreos and Cheerios, scaring the hell out of parents who just want to feed their kids safe food. The big question is, do they not understand the assay? Or do they understand the assay and are just lying? Are they being deceptive or do they not understand? That's the big question. Either way, it's not right. So I had a conversation with um, Alex Kasprak over at Snopes just through Twitter and email and um, showed him that the, the real article do not article like the uh, you know brochure from Food Democracy Now, it's not the same as rigorous peer review and uh, publication in a legitimate journal, and that it should just be false. This is not a real report. And luckily, Snopes and uh, Alex Kasprak had the, um, had the courage and the guts to make that change, and they're going to catch a lot of crap for doing it. And you know what? It happened within hours. Uh, Vani Hari, the food babe, went to Twitter, posted our conversation, you know, Mike, back and forth with Alex, and then said it was a conspiracy led by, <laughs> wait for it, Monsanto! 
<laughs> so apparently a scientist that provides critical analysis that corrects this incorrect claim um, must be because the company has the tentacles around his neck and everyone else in science, right? So, so a win for Snopes. Huge accolades for Alex Kasprak. And thank you, thank you, thank you, Alex, for reevaluating your argument and sorting out the facts and, and keeping Snopes an awesome source for great debunking. The whole story is, again, on my blog, Illumination, and you can read it there. So off to today's interview about hops. It's the plant that adds flavor, depth, and texture to my favorite beverage, (laughs) cerveza. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thanks. Here it goes. Today we'll be talking about hops. And uh, hops, uh, we know from uh, being, well, we... the kind of the flavoring element or a key flavoring element of beer and other beverages, I suppose. And I don't really know much about it, but um, we do have with us an expert. And I'm very fortunate to have with us today uh, Dr. Sean Townsend here from Oregon State University. He's an assistant professor that works in hops breeding. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Townsend. Uh, Thank you, Kevin. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is really cool because everybody is interested uh, lately in hops and primarily because there's such an interesting array of beverages that are being made available now. And it really was a good idea for us to dial it back and start to ask, what is this stuff? And so what what is the, botanically, if you speak about hops, what are we talking about? Yeah, hops is, uh, well, actually from a botanical standpoint, hops are the mature female flower from the hop plant will and these hops then are used they have a variety of uses but principally in the beer brewing process and this is a uh, a uh, can you give us a little description of the plant I, I mean i know i've seen it before and it's really an odd plant uh it is quite a different plant yes it uh, is a plant that's very tall it's a herbaceous perennial so the above ground portion of the plant dies back every year to the soil level but the crown is a perennial, long-lived perennial plant. And so every year, that plant, uh, at least in the commercial setting, will climb a climbing support of some sort. And in the U.S., we use an 18-foot tall trellis. So it's, it's quite a unique production system. Yeah, I've seen some of them in, uh, in Corvallis, right out there on Peoria Road by the Grin Repository. Um, I don't know what that road is that goes over the bridge there, but there's a bunch of hops there. And, and then there's a place in town, probably a couple, but there was a place in town where you can get a beer that had a huge hops vine out and back, all the way up the building. Yes. Well, yeah, it's very common in the brew tubs up here to see hops growing. It's just part of the marketing, I think. And the hops that you speak about are actually on Highway 34, uh, just across the bridge. That's part of our research plots. Okay. Yeah, I've seen those before. And it's um, I get out there now and then. But the, uh, the, when you mention it's part of the marketing of brewing breweries or brew pubs, they try to do it here in Florida, and you don't see them doing especially well outside of the brew pubs. <laughs> Hops really would like to, the latitude is an issue, a lot of day length. Yeah, well, what about where this thing came from? I mean, you get on the idea of day length. Is it something that originated in, uh, in more temperate regions, or where in the world did it come from? Well, it, uh, our best evidence is that it originated in China, actually. And roughly a million years ago, it uh, migrated westward into Europe. 
and then more recently, at least in geologic terms, uh, roughly 600,000 years ago, it made its way across the Bering Strait into North America. But it has been primarily, you know, it's, it's a crop or it's a plant species that's a, more adapted to northern latitudes. And so are people improving this, you know, through breeding and selection like any other wild selection by using the flowers for something, like like making beer? Oh, yes. That's, that's primarily how we go about improving hops is, is through beer production. What we term sensory, there's a lot of uh, rub and sniff and that sort of thing, but the litmus test, if you will, of a good hop plant is how well it brews beer. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking back to those who first cultivated it back in the when in China or or other places it was originally uh, cultivated. Were they brewing beer with it or using it for something else? Well, uh, it was used originally, so far as we can tell from the literature, uh, that it was used. Apparently, Egypt was one of the first places that we we are aware of hops being used. But it wasn't used in beer production. It was used as a uh, preservative because it has very potent antimicrobial properties to it. So the beer production part of this didn't really, it doesn't show up in the literature anyway until about 740 AD or so. Okay, so as a preservative, were they using it like in uh, preserving bodies and stuff? I mean, or what? <laughs> I mean, you know, they always say they covered him in herbs and spices. You know, right? Well, maybe so, Kevin. I, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I, I do know that it was used as a food preservative, and it's still used today in some parts of the world as a food preservative. Okay, I, I only ask because there's parts of me that I feel maybe <laughs> preserved by too much hops, but that's a story yeah, for yeah. another day. Yeah. I guess the uh, the thing I think about is when we talk about domestication and crop improvement and uh, and try to figure out where all these things align. So you think about, um, you know, beer, certainly. Well, let's go back to hops coming from China, but maybe things like barley and some of the other grains originating in the Mediterranean, which would include Egypt. Yeah, it's just it's kind of interesting to think of places where maybe that got together. Is there any real evidence about where first fermented beers were uh, originated and were maybe introduced to hops? Right, well, the first, yeah, the first day um, that I'm aware of, the first mention of it is actually from about 1079 A.D., so it, it's actually relatively recently that it's been uh, used in the beer brewing process. So it appears that the ancient peoples used it more as a preservative, and there's also some narcoleptic properties to hops, so it it's uh, sleep-inducing, and so it could have been used for that as well. Ooh, I, I have evidence of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so every harvest, it's, it's tough to stay awake. <laughs> I guess um, when I think about this, I think about, um, and I know there's a lot of stories, and maybe you can help us sort that out. They talk about hops as being an agent in something like uh, India Pale Ale, where they would say, okay, we're using hops in this fermented beverage because it acts as an antimicrobial over long trips back to Britain. Is there any truth in those kind of stories? Well, that, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what we're told, or what historians tell us, and that's where the India Pale Ale came from. It was the beer, when it was hopped normally, would spoil before the sailors could make it to India on those long voyages, and so they just simply upped the dosage of the hops, and um, of course it made a much more bitter beer, but it also allowed the beer to make it 
through the entire journey. And when we talk about those antimicrobial compounds or those properties, I'm assuming that comes from that same bitterness that you're getting as, as an organoleptic or, or a flavoring um, or sensory uh, experience as, as a human. But is there, um, where does that come from in the flower? Like, where, why is that part of this? Yeah, the, so the, the female flower is full of special glands called lupulin glands. And you could just think of these as little chemical factories. And they are chock full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of compounds. It's just amazing. But the, uh, the antimicrobial portion of that is due to the, uh, some of the bittering acids that are in there, uh, primarily the, what's called the beta acids. Okay, the beta acids. And is, right. and is, a, is a lupulin gland, is that a modification of a trichome by chance? It is. It's related to that, yes. Okay. Yeah, they're called peltate glands. Okay, so yeah, there's a lot of plant nerds who listen to this who like yeah. more more plant details, you know, eh, you know, more botany. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so peltate glands and the trichomes, yeah, they're specialized tri- trichomes, and um, but they're little glands, and they're found actually all over the plant, but they're but they're very concentrated in the female flower when it's mature. And so, when did people really get excited in the U.S., like in the North America, I should say, in Canada and the U.S about hops and were they always a part of beer like like back when samuel adams first made his first batch yeah. <laughs> right um, well, yes, it, it, as the uh you know the Euro- europeans made their way into north america beer was very much part of the daily diet and so they wanted that same diet when they made their way to north america so it was about 1629 that the massachusetts company introduced hops from Europe into North America. Now, interestingly, hop was already here, naturally, because it had migrated into North America. But um, the settlers, the early settlers, were used to the European-style hops, which have a little bit different chemistry than some of the hops that we have here in North America. And so they were introduced, and then they made their way across the United States as the settlers moved. So you mentioned that they came over with settlers. So where were the major hop-growing regions historically, and where are they now? So historically, along the East Coast, we had, uh, we had a high concentration of hop production. Uh, New York, in particular, was a huge growing region. And because of disease problems and whatnot, uh, the hops there uh, just eventually didn't do very well. As settlers moved to the West Coast, hops followed them, of course, and then eventually Oregon, Washington, and to some, to some parts, uh, Idaho and California became the major hop-producing region in the United States. Today it's centered primarily, Washington State produces probably 70% of our hops, and then Oregon and Idaho would be the other two primary uh, production centers in the United States now. And, and kind of, I was excited to talk to you tonight. I was really fired up about this. And I made the mistake of not talking about why we would talk to you. <laughs> so tell us about your job and why you are a hop expert. Well, I am a hop breeder and geneticist at Oregon State University. And my task is to produce new cultivars of aroma hops for the craft beer industry. So basically, you could think about it. Uh, the hops are the palette that the brewers paint with, and I'm trying to give them more colors on that palette to paint with. Give us new, entirely new flavors of beers. 
So okay. that's my niche within the industry. That's what I do. Awesome. So let's um, take a break at this point. Um, we'll be right back in just a couple minutes with Dr. Sean Townsend from Oregon State University, where we're discussing hops, the flavor compounds in beer. We'll be right back. The Talking Biotech Podcast has one goal, and that's to get you excited about your food, new technologies, and the good things we can do when we put the two together. We live in a time of great innovation and discovery, yet the new findings are slow, oftentimes, to reach the public. And, and why is that? Because of the tremendous misunderstanding, coupled to a complacent population that would rather err to the side of caution, rather than implement safe technology that can help farmers, consumers, and the planet. And that's why it's so important that you listen and share the stories of agricultural technology. That's why this podcast is important, because it provides you with access to the experts that tell the beautiful stories of the genetic improvement of crops, animals, and medicines. So please make sure you complete a review on iTunes, share the podcast with a friend, listen to it around the dinner table, and Share the stories of the secret lives of the botanical critters in each layer of that seven-layer salad. With your help, we can move agricultural innovation to application, and that happens with communication. We're all in this together to bring safe and affordable technologies that help our people and our planet. My name is Chelsea Boonstra, and welcome to the Boonstra Report, where we talk about all things agriculture. Phytate is a major component of wheat seeds, which accumulates metal ions, thus reducing the nutritional value of wheat grains. Transgenic plants expressing heterologous phytase are to have increased mineral nutrients in their seeds. Nabila Abid from the Foreman Christian College in Pakistan with a team of researchers developed transgenic wheat expressing the phytase gene in its endosperm. There is no significant difference in nutrient composition between the transgenic and non-transgenic seeds. However, in the dough and bread made from the transgenic lines, there is a significant increase in iron and zinc contents. Thanks for listening, and be sure to follow me, Forever Farm Girl, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or Chelsea Boonstra. Thanks. So thank you, Chelsea, for another episode of the Boonstra Report. And we're back to the Talking Biotech podcast. And today we're talking about hops. So this unusual plant that makes a compound or a series of compounds or a rich uh, cluster of compounds in the female flowers that are used in brewing to add characteristic flavors to beer. And we're speaking with Dr. Sean Townsend, who's an assistant professor at Oregon State University, who is a hop breeder, who's helping us understand about the history and the future of hops. So, um, Sean, what else is cooking with respect to variety development? You know, your job is to be a breeder. What are you shooting for in the next generation of hops? Well, Kevin, I have two sets of stakeholders, if you will, that I... That I, that I work for. Uh, one side of that would be the grower community, so they would be most interested in the agronomic traits, so high yield, disease resistance, uh, in particular for downy mildew and powdery mildew. Those are our two principal 
disease problems. And then also harvest bait, so an early maturing hot variety is most desirable here because we have fall rains. And then on the brewery side of things, then uh, that's all about the essential oil fraction that's in the hop cones and the flavors and aromas that those essential oils impart to the various types of beers that the brewers like to to create. So those would be the two two stakeholders that I work for. And you know, one side of it is a chemistry thing; the other side of it is an agronomic question. That's really cool. Now, are you are, do you have a an extension appointment? I do not. I'm actually strictly uh, breeding and with a little bit of research. <laughs> yeah, just because, could you imagine uh, an extension appointment in this? You would do a lot of uh, sampling, you know. <laughs> well, it's actually part of my job is to drink beer, Kevin, because uh, that's really the acid test to a good hot variety. So we have to make beer with these things at the end and taste it. Oh, yeah. So I actually have to drink beer as part of my job. It's great. That's great, you know, going out to an extension event and getting so jaked you blow lunch, you know. Good, <laughs> good times. Well, usually we don't get that carried away. <laughs> well, you, you want to test it thoroughly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we have college students for that, right? So. <laughs> no, that's really cool. So what, what are some of the um, uh, breeding priorities? So if you're growing a hop vine, what are you searching for in either the physical structure of the plant or is this more about that product chemistry? Uh, no, it's actually both. So we look for, of course, vigor in the plant, and we look for long side arms, so it's the lateral branching coming off of the main stem. We would like to see that to be two to three feet in length. Uh, we look for short internodes along those uh, laterals because short internodes usually translates into many more flowers in a higher yielding plant. And then I look for cone development up and down the plant in more of a cylindrical fashion. So uh, some of the hop genotypes will produce most of the hops clear at the top of the trellis. And it looks just like a, we call it a top crop, but it looks like a mushroom almost. And we don't like that. It's much more difficult to harvest. So those are the sorts of things that we look for uh, in, in the field setting in terms of the botanical parts of the plant. Is it a reasonably disease-resistant plant because of the antimicrobial uh, characteristics of the secondary compounds? Uh, actually, no. not At least not here in the Willamette Valley, unfortunately. Uh, downy mildew is quite a problem for us and because of the cool, wet spring conditions that we have. So most genotypes are susceptible to some extent to downy mildew. And that would be the one feather in my cap, I guess, is if I could really find a good source of downy mildew resistance in, for hop. Yeah, there's a lot of genes that are being discovered that seem to impart kind of a cross-species um, resistance to downy mildew, some of these MLOs and other stuff. Have, they, uh, have people started to look for specific gene um, alleles maybe in hops that could confer resistance? Yes, there is some work uh, going on right now with my colleague here in the USDA hop breeding program, Dr. John Henning. So he's doing a lot of the genomics work and marker work with hop right now. And I collaborate with John on a lot of that work, but he's spearheading that effort. So that is an area of active research, as well as powdery mildew resistance gene. Ah, that's right. That was powdery mildew with the MLO. Was there, there, this has a genome. You guys have sequenced a genome for hops? 
Uh, it's pretty close. Yeah, John is well into that, and hopefully within the year that'll all be done. And so the the, pri- uh, the uh, new varieties that you're breeding, are those being done strictly for kind of a craft beer market, or are your varieties going out to even like the big ones? Are they going in the tanks at Budweiser and Molson Coors, or are these strictly for uh, the more smaller batch varieties? Yeah, my, my target niche would be the craft beer industry. Now, that's not to say that if one of the macro brewers really fell in love with one of my varieties, I mean, they could certainly use it if they would like. But uh, I spend my time interacting with the craft beer segment. That's, that's my target. And, and how, do you, uh, how do you feel about the craft beer phenomenon in the last decade, and, and where do you see it going? Oh, it's really exciting. It's just it's incredible growth. And I think it will continue to grow for a while. And like any industry, there will become a time when it matures, I'm sure. But uh, the Americans' appetite, you know, our appetite for good craft beer seems to be growing. And that's really spurring these craft breweries to to continue to grow themselves. So it's really exciting. I think it's cool just because I always liked good beer. I always liked the hops. I always appreciated a good, solid beer and always kind of turned my nose up at Budweiser or Coors, you know. And and then um, it's nice to see more people realizing that there's something out there and there's more varieties and flavors than just the watered-down giant stuff. But do you kind of see it reaching peak craft beer at this point, or is that maybe not happening in Oregon yet? Well, it's not happening here in the Northwest, no. Uh, I think there will be some change, some changes in palates. Uh, we do seem to see a change towards maybe not such hoppy IPAs, but maybe something closer to what we would call a session IPA. It has lower alcohol, maybe a little bit milder flavor, not quite so much bitterness. Um, perhaps we'll see more of a movement towards some of the Pilsner-style beers, too a little bit different, you know, not an ale, but more of a Pilsner style. Mm-hmm. So it just, the flavor, you know, the, the palate kind of just changes, ebbs and flows, just like any anything, I guess. And are there a lot of uh, researchers looking at sensory quality in beer and trying to help inform your breeding priorities? Oh, certainly. That's a very hot area of, of research right now, trying to understand, in particular, the essential oil fraction and how all those compounds interact both with amongst themselves but then with the various yeasts and malts and whatnot in the brewing process. And it's so complex. There's a number of people working on this and we just really don't understand that process very well. Well, in terms of the stuff you can understand, we talked a little bit about genes and genomes. Are people working with molecular markers in accelerating the breeding process? We're getting there. We don't really have at this point a lot of um, reliable markers for marker-assisted selection, uh, but we're getting closer. One of the early ones was a marker for sex, because a hot plant, until it flowers, you cannot tell whether it's a male or female. Hop is dioecious, so they're male and female plants, I should say that. And so one of the uh, early attempts at this was a sex marker, but that has not worked very well yet. But we're getting closer. 
So we know that there's not any transgenic or any uh, genetically engineered hops at this point, but are there any efforts to do that? And is there any reason that maybe you could increase, I don't know, some key compound that could have a very positive effect? Uh, at this point, no, Kevin, there's, there's not anyone that I'm aware of using uh, GMO technology to create new hops. And the reason being is the breweries just would not accept that. That's not something that they want. Uh, hopefully someday we might be able to use that because I could really see a use for it in terms of some of the virus and viroid problems that we have in hop that we can't really solve through traditional techniques, that we might be able to use some of the newer molecular biology techniques to address that. So I think there would be a role for disease resistance, certainly. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense, especially with powdery mildew, which that's that nut's been pretty well cracked in other plants. But, you know, also the viral question, I think hops, they share a, a virus or two with a number of other uh, crops, don't they? Like rosaceous crops, tree crops? Yes, yes. There's There are several different uh, viruses that can move back and forth among different species. And, um, and typically in hops, it, it's really an interesting phenomenon because you don't necessarily see the effect just on the phenotype of the plant, just to see the plant, like it's not shorted, stunted, or anything like that, but it tends to really affect the chemistry. And so it's not until you get the hops to market that you realize that there's an issue. So it, it can be a difficult beast to deal with. Well, here's the million dollar question and the thing that all of the people listening are dying to know. So you're an expert in hops, you're an expert in beer. Um, well, let me ask you this one first, before we get to the million dollar question, how many different kinds of hops are there currently that are used in, in beer? And do, do you see that segment out between say the, um, craft beers and the large beers, or are there some that are shared between them? Yeah, there's probably, I would guess 20 to 25 right now that are commonly used in the beer brewing process. And some of those, yes, are shared between the macro brewers and the craft brewers. But interestingly, I think the craft brewers use nearly 70% of the aroma hops. So they use, or certainly the top 10 aroma hops in production. So they use a tremendous amount of the aroma hops. Whereas the macro brewers tend to focus more on the bittering type hops. Okay, and that, I guess that brings us to that million dollar question. If you're, you know, an expert on beer, an expert on hops, what is your favorite go-to beer? <laughs> I like a good IPA. I, I really like a good, well-balanced IPA. Not something that, you know, that dries your mouth out or that's 8% alcohol necessarily, but just a good, well-rounded IPA. Yeah, so you're, you're not going to go out on a limb with any particular brand endorsements though, right? Well... I, I pro, you know, I do have my favorites, but I have to work with all these people, and so, you know. <laughs> no, I understand how that works. I, I guess it's cool because, like, I always like, um, you know, just kind of a go-to is I can get um, uh, Sierra Nevada, for instance, is just sure. always, always consistent, always good, always IPA-ish, and but I like all the local ones, but I know I've been to ones like. Um, and I don't know if you get this out by you. I get it down in Florida. Founders um, All Day IPA that it almost tastes it's so hoppy. It, it has that dry your mouth out. Right. <laughs> right. You know, mouthful right. of socks feel, you know. <laughs> no, I, 
Well, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us, Sean. It was really intriguing to learn more about this unusual plant and uh, the plant that really graces many products we enjoy. Uh, if people want to learn more about hops or hop breeding or your program, what would you suggest? Well, if they go to the uh, Oregon State University website and just search on Sean Townsend with a U and hops, then that will take them to my, my web page that's within the Crop and Soil Sciences Department. And there I have a lot of other information, just general information about hops and hop production and whatnot, some pictures and that sort of thing. And they can leave me a message, email if, if they have a question or whatnot. Excellent. Well, I'll put some of that information on the website that accompanies this particular episode. Great. So, Dr. Sean Townsend, thank you so much for spending time with us today on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Well, and I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.